Welcome to Thriving with Mental Illness, a podcast with real talk, an open and honest conversation about issues surrounding mental health. There are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't okay to ask. I'm Mikhail Buck, author, public speaker, and suicide survivor who's lived with mental illness for over 20 years. And with me is my guy, Adam. Hey guys, welcome back. We're excited to be back to have another episode. Uh, Before we jump in though, why don't we uh, do the meme of the week? Okay, okay. Meme of the week is from Sarah Shower, and she says, I don't have seasonal depression. I have everyday depression. I'm a townie, a local. I'm here when the tourists arrive, and I'm here when they leave. (laughs) You and me both, Sarah Shower. (laughs) We are locals. Well, and now we'll give an update on the family. Mm Mm-hmm. Recently, the big news is that I went on uh, another fishing trip. (laughs) Another fishing... I again went on another fishing trip. So those that listen, you'll... (laughs) There's two things I do. I work and I fish. Those are the two things. And then in between, we do the podcast. In between... In between the the working and the fishing trips. Yes. And then I do the podcast to tell you about the fishing trip. (laughs) Well, do tell. Well, we went to the Black River. Our uh, new son-in-law, Michael, came with us. It was so much fun. Um, it's very rugged to get back there. It's on the Indian Reservation, on the uh, White Mountain Apache Indian Reservation. And you got to go through some pretty heavy-duty boulders and rocks. and Yeah, it's climbing. like two hours on a dirt road going yeah. whatever, 10 miles but an hour or something. it's all worth it because the fishing is amazing. When I came home, I asked you how many fish you caught. Do you care to share? And just so you know, Adam's not a liar face. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we were there for like two days, and it was like 150 fish. It was like <laughs> ridiculous. But we were fly fishing, and my uh, that's my favorite thing to do. So we had a good time. Now I'm back. Now I'm working. Working and telling everybody about your fishing trip. That's right, and doing well, the podcast. Then, you did come home with a fishing injury because of your uh, plethora of fishes <laughs> that you did catch. Yes, the line, uh, because we caught so many fish, it just kind of seared a line in my hand and, and burned it. Um, but you'll Because you were catching fish so fast. Yeah. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Uh, you'll all be happy to know that my injury is healed. That's so hard, babe. But speaking of fishing injuries, um, Mikkel actually had a oh legitimate... Mikkel one time went to the Black River with us. This you... is when I went on that trip. A few years ago. I am not a fisherman. That's why you go yes. with other people to fish. Like, I'll go, but I usually just sit and read a book or something. But I went three or four years ago to the yeah. Black River. And I thought this is the perfect time to yes. teach Mikkel to fly fish. I did actually catch fish, 29, mm-hmm. but who's counting? <laughs> but there's a lot of, uh, for those that don't fly fish, uh, I'm sure you've seen it, but there's a lot of movement, arm movement. And somehow Mikkel <laughs> injured herself. Apparently I have no technique because I'm just like <laughs> ramming my rod and arm all over the place. And I came home with an elbow injury, no joke, that took four months to recover from. And I still have not stopped <laughs> receiving crap from Jana, who was my lifting partner at the time, about my fishing injury. I'm like, this is a real life thing, okay? This is a real injury. But you also have a real life so, fishing injury. yes. Mine was just because I don't know how to do it right. Yours is because... You're so good at it that sometimes, you know, the price just has to be paid. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, my goal was to convert Mikkel to fly fishing, and I don't think I accomplished it. Uh, What are you talking about? I have caught 29 fish in a day, and I got a fly fishing injury. Like, I've already accomplished all there is to accomplish (laughs) in the fly fishing world. There is nothing more for me to shoot for. It's done. It's done. I've accomplished it. 
Congratulations. Thank you. You won. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. Welcome back to you and welcome back to the listeners. And today, especially, welcome to our guest. We're so happy to have her on. Welcome to the podcast, Katie McPherson. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm honored. I saw you, you were interviewed in a news article that caught my attention. And I thought we need to have her on. So we're happy to pick your brain to get the knowledge and have our listeners understand what you have seen and experienced. Why don't you give us a little synopsis of what you do and how you got there? Uh, okay, I'm a mom of four teenage daughters um, who attend school in Chandler Unified School District. Their um, twins are 13 and then a 15 and 16 year old. Um, so life is busy and crazy. <laughs> um, and I am a career educator. I spent um, 20 years on a middle or high school campus. I started as a high school Spanish teacher, and then I transitioned to guidance counseling, and then I became a school administrator. So um, in 2015, um, we had a suicide on the campus of a Tempe Union High School, um, Corona del Sol. Um, and that, you know, really spurred me to really look at what was going on with our kids. Um, I have always done, like I was always in the school and then I did like workshops after school for parents or teenagers. I had a little like girl power group at the middle school when I was a really young teacher. So I've always had sort of a side hustle. Um, so that year that that suicide happened on campus, there were about 3,600 students in the school building when that occurred. And so unfortunately for those kiddos, you know, that's lifelong vicarious trauma. Um, so I got brought into that situation because I teach social media responsibility. And I've always had a fascination with what we have handed our children. And so the news came to me and said, you know, what are we missing here? And I said, we're not missing anything. It's all right here. And when you looked at that student's newsfeed, there were blaring blatant signs that he was not okay. Um, unfortunately, he was 18 at the time, a senior, a very um, well-loved student athlete, number two runner in the state of Arizona. And so dad, you know, wasn't following him on social media. Like he was not a kid that um, maybe was signaling that he was quote at risk, um, but he had some issues at school um, near the end of the school year and got kicked off the track team, which then triggered the loss of his college scholarship, which then started him down a pretty fast spiral within, you know, two, three days. Um, so I started this work by accident. Um, it was not something I ever imagined being a part of, to be honest, because suicide in the 20 years that I was on a campus from 1998 to, through 2016 was not spoken about. It wasn't something that the schools talked about. We might have had like one student per year in our school district of 33,000 die by suicide. And it was like a very quiet memo, like we lost a student, there's grief resources, but it was not spoken about in our administrative meetings. It just wasn't a pressing issue until 2015, 16, 17, things started to really skyrocket. Wow. On your website, you kind of refer to yourself as a youth mental health advocate. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I dabble in all aspects of it, um, just ranging again from like the digital wellness piece to social media responsibility to co-facilitating with clinicians. I'm not a clinician and never would purport to be, um, but I do see the school side of things. And I do think that we are unfortunately way behind in recognizing the signs and symptoms of someone that's not doing well. Um, and those signs and symptoms are showing up both on campus and at home. And that we are still, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, um, working in silos instead of in tandem, meaning parents, community, police, fire, church, business leaders, and those people that make policy and have funding resources. Like we haven't come together collectively um, to really put those youth mental health resources together in a like centralized hub where people can access mm -hmm. it pretty readily. So you talk about the signs were there for this amazing student back in 2015. And now what would you say that those signs are that we've been missing? They're the same. Personally, I can only speak to my experience with this within the clusters, but you know, in 2017, Queen Creek had a, a contagion of suicides that summer between Mother's Day and Labor Day. We lost five students, four from Queen Creek and one from Higley. So within that cluster and the continuous pace that we're at, it's, um, you know, really typical things that mimic being a typical teenager. So it's difficult to see it when you're in the thick of it. But if you know what you're looking for, things like sleeping a lot, um, not eating or overeating, um, grades are declining, substance abuse is definitely um, a part of it. And I think there's this misnomer about like vaping and weed and like it's just weed and what's laced within the weed or the potency of the weed. So definitely substances, um, you know, certainly bullying is a part of the issue. The students that have died by suicide regionally have been, um, I would say for the most part, very, very um, well-resourced families um, that are highly engaged in sports and academics and have thousands of friends. Um, their social media presence would lead you to believe that everything's fine. So I do think social media is an illusion that people really need to hone in on. But part of that too, you know, the warning signs, as we saw last week in Uvalde, um, the warning signs of someone escalating towards violence and the warning signs of someone escalating towards having a mental health crisis are very similar in that they are posting, they are screaming for help, and the adults in the room are not paying attention. They're not supervising, they're not monitoring, and they're not seeing kind of this cumulative effect of the posts. And what I would say about the posts and what I'd say about devices is that everything you want to know about your kid is on their device, whether it's a school-issued device, an iPad, a phone, there's no mystery to these children's lives. So I get a little frustrated and it probably sounds rude that people are like, oh, we had no idea when all of the mm -hmm. clues were in front of us, both physically in front of us and digitally in front of us too. Yeah. 
So this is kind of a veering off question, but I'm interested in your perspective from a parenting standpoint, because you do have teenagers, as well as you see this on the education front, because that's where your line of work is. But what are your opinions about parental monitoring on these digital devices then? I think it is 100% an obligation. Like if you're not monitoring, you are missing out on a behavioral insight tool. So I actually work for a company called Bark and Bark is an app that runs artificial intelligence on your child's devices and alerts you only to safety issues. So it's not, you know, kids are like, this is an invasion of privacy. Um, Yes, to the extent that it's a a safety issue. So any sort of depression, anxiety, self-harm, substance abuse, predation, sexting and cyberbullying would be something that our app would alert parents to. I think most parents would want to know about things like that. And then with the alerts, parents have the ability to figure out what they want to do with that. Um, I use it as a behavioral insight tool to see how my own girls are doing as well as their friendship group. I also want to know if strangers, whether that's an older classmate or a real stranger stranger are trying to contact my student. I do think it is 100% a parental obligation. And this misnomer about like, eh, I don't know, he's 17. I like, unfortunately, sometimes we have to save them from themselves. And, yeah. you know, there are even the best of kids are doing things and dabbling in things that are typical, typically experimenting with vapes and marijuana, alcohol, we did that. But the access and the potency and the ability to access those things is not the same at all. You brought up something interesting earlier that I wanna circle back to and you just alluded to now. Some of these behaviors are typical teen behaviors and some of them are warning signs and they're so, so close. That margin of difference is so narrow. We have two kids that deal with pretty significant mental health issues and it manifested differently. Like my daughter was very high functioning all the way through and and just there was a lot of emotional turmoil and other things behind the scenes with anxiety. My son was not really able to function all the way through it. I say my, (laughs) it's yours too. He's both of our sons. Yeah. But uh, with him, it was so hard to differentiate. Is this typical teen behavior or is this mental illness uh, triggers and manifestations? And I, I honestly don't know how parents do it. We have, I, I mean, I've lived with bipolar disorder for 20 plus years. So we have a lot of uh, understanding knowledge so much more than what a, a typical parent might And it was still the hardest thing in the world for me to differentiate. And I'm just wondering how in the world are these parents supposed to do this when you don't know so much of this information already? And I think that's my, you know, I'm just going to be so honest. Like my frustration currently is um, we have to come together collectively. Like I said, all those entities, because it can't just be on the schools. It can't just be on the parents. However, our schools are a medium and a mechanism for parents to become more aware. And so if it's not gonna be the school district, then it needs to be the city or town because there has to be some sort of entity that is pushing out this awareness information. And then alongside of that, you have education. So there are awareness campaigns and then there are the parent nights, the parent mornings, the webinars, the, you know, the stuff that you can really educate yourself on. And I do think, like it's it's 2022 we've got to recognize that 
if a student doesn't feel well, then they can't perform well. And so if all we're looking at is academics and data as parents, we're missing a huge part of who your child is. And so I do think it is, the onus is on parents, but again, going back to, and I'll just use the Evalde shooter as an example, you have a family that's living below the poverty line, you have generational trauma, and you have limited resources. So to think that these parents could have scooped him up and intervened, I think that would be a lofty ask for that particular situation. Um, so the weird thing or the interesting thing lately that I found over the last five, six years is the high risk group for our community, and I can only speak to the East Valley in general, is this high achieving, well-resourced, affluent community that does have the ability to have the awareness and resources. And so I think it has to start, you know, like my kind of target market is third through fifth graders. Like it's much too late to start talking mm -hmm. about middle school, way too late in high school. You know, the average age of sexting, experimenting with drugs and alcohol is 11 and 12 years old. We have to start having conversations well before that about these things, because again, with the internet, the access is there. We often talk to groups about uh, suicide and mental health and things like that. And there's still surprisingly some adults that get uncomfortable with the subject, almost like, I don't know if I want you talking to my 12 year old about this, about such a heavy topic, about like such you're going to be the one introducing this. And to me, I'm kind of like, oh, no, it's already there, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. These are already things our kids are dealing with regardless of whether or not we are comfortable or want to talk about them, they're already dealing with them either themselves or, or just in, in their friend groups and in their schools. Like you said, all, all of those students now at the high school down in Tempe, that's a lifelong thing that they're forever going to have to deal with. So how much better is it if we're the ones that bring it up and they know we're a safe place for them to talk to? Well, and I think the larger piece of that is you know, suicide is the end of the runway. And there's always a runway of struggle that leads to that. And if you know the warning signs and you're more aware, we can intervene and mitigate the risk of that being a decision that they make. Additionally, what we do know is suicide is contagious. After that boy took his life on campus, six more children from that high school died in succession in the years that followed. And we know that if we don't do what we call postvention and triage everybody in the school, that we will continue to have a, a group that's at risk. Um, we're currently dealing with this at Hamilton and Perry this week because we have two separate suicides with friendships from football in between. And so we have two groups that are at high, high risk right now. Um, so I would say to parents, you know, afraid to talk about it, afraid, you know, we're gonna plant the seed in their head. The seed's already there. There's definitely friends and classmates of them talking about it, exchanging text messages about it and seeking help. And so you've got two 14 year olds going back and forth on Insta trying to you know, triage this. If we as adults do not come to the table and say, this is an issue and we're gonna talk about it, we are part of the lethal hazard that this is for our kids. This is a public health issue. This is yeah. not like, uh, I think this is a lethal hazard and it is a school safety issue. We know that, you know, when we look at school shooters, 78% of them are ideating or have attempted already. So if you don't want to talk about suicide, 
then let's talk about school safety and the fluidity of that. And I think that's something that most people don't know and they don't want to talk about. Some of those statistics when you were talking about those younger ages can be pretty shocking. Like that's, it sounds so much younger than what you might think. And I heard you sharing some statistics from JAMA that there's a 30% increase in suicide attempts from age, was it five to 11? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. And even, you know, our own Phoenix Children's Hospital in November sounded the alarm and said, we've never seen so many five to 11 year olds come to the ER for this. So again, back to kind of that public health health issue, if the awareness and education were coming from a community effort, and that would include all those entities and hospitals, you know, during COVID, especially our ERs are overflowing with people. And then you have these students going to the ER, like we are taxing the system too. And then you have these parents that don't realize like when you go to the ER, the bill that comes from that is, and that's assuming that they have resources, right? And so we do have plentiful resources for students without interns, for students with interns, and for students that can cash pay. But the system, as we know, is it's fragmented. It's, it's pretty broken. Um, and on the front of those younger students, when you drill down the topic of suicide, it is coping and resiliency. It is in the moment of feeling like I cannot get out of this emotional pain. What are my five go-to strategies? I go running, I listen to music, I journal, I talk to my mom, I call my aunt, like whatever those strategies are, I believe that's what children are missing. What they have in front of them mostly are devices where they go doom scrolling. They start exchanging messages with a student that is also struggling. And it truly this like contagious effect of stress is contagious, anxiety is contagious. You all know obviously that living with somebody with anxiety is hard. Living with somebody with depression is hard. Living with somebody with bipolar is hard. Like, it is difficult to manage, but if we have those coping strategies in place, we can at least soften the blow of those feelings so that we don't go down the runway further. So for me, this will, you know, you could title this coping because if people don't want to talk about the word suicide or the topic suicide, then let's talk about coping. What does your family do when they are struggling? What do they do when they're overstressed? What do mom and dad do and model for their student um, and how to cope? I mean, we all joke around about like, you know, today's been such a long day. Where's my wine? Like that's funny, haha, but the kids are watching us. And if that's the go-to strategy, then why wouldn't I go vape? Like you're drinking your wine. I've got my vape. Like this is heavily an adult issue. We've had some specialists on specifically talking about substance abuse and addiction and in relation to mental illness. And it's so interesting. So many times we just think, oh, this is teen behavior, but your word it's coping behavior. Like they're trying to fill a need. Something's not okay. And they're trying to feel better. And so many times they don't have any other tools to know how to do it. So that's why they're using these substances is to help them cope. So your idea of having other options is like, that's a brilliant solution. I feel like what they're missing and I someday maybe will write a book or an ebook about like this emotional blueprint, like we teach them in pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, like if you see smoke or fire, if you smell smoke or fire, you stop, drop and roll. 
what is currently going on inside of them is a fire and there's smoke and they're signaling to us and they don't know the strategies to stop, drop and roll out of that emotional pain. So it becomes chronic and clinical and acute. I mean, the acuity in our community is high and I'm not sure people recognize that Mm -hmm. um, because again, the stigma is still there that, However, I will say like these children, there are two groups of students from Chandler High that have mobilized a protest and like a, you know, rally, so to speak, yesterday on mental health. So this, the kids get it. They are very socially active. They want to talk about it. It's the adults in the room that are uncomfortable. And so I believe that a student action board and getting kids involved in this is you know coupled with parents is what will move the needle but we have to convince again the people and the leadership that this is a pressing issue and i i struggle a little bit with that because the data points are there you know our our drug infractions our diversion programs our truancy, our attendance, our discipline issues. We've never seen so many physical assaults as we've seen this school year. So like everything's pointing to the fire that I'm speaking about. Um, it's how are, how are we collectively gonna stop, drop and roll out of this? And it, it's going to take a community effort. Yeah. You know, in, in Mikkel's book, she talks about a suicide attempt years and years ago. And it's when I was not, prepared and I had no experience in with mental illness. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how bad she was suffering. There were times where she was asking for help and I underplayed or I was. You didn't didn't respond immediately. You were like, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know it's a problem, but yeah, we'll get to it. It wasn't an urgent situation. You know, you talk about a fire, you know, when something's on fire, people don't just go, okay, I'll deal with that in a few minutes and go back to their phones, you know, be like, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll put that on my to-do list to call the fire department. I'm on it. No, you take action, you know, quickly. And I think that's what I've learned. And fortunately, I had a second chance. But when you see those warning signs, and I think the problem is kids have a hard time communicating the urgency of it to adults. And so they'll say something, And typically it's understated. They're not going to come out and say, I'm a 10 out of 10. I'm about ready to lose it. They're probably just going to say something a little more toned down. Well, in all honesty, I feel like some of that might be a little bit of testing the waters. Like, how are you going to respond to this? Are you somebody that's safe for me to talk to? If I put my feelers out, like, are you going to freak out and tell me all the reasons why I shouldn't be feeling like this or why this shouldn't be hard or why what I'm thinking isn't okay. Or are you going to be somebody that's going to stop and say, okay, you you just said that. Why don't you tell me more about it? Or what do you mean by that? Or is there a way I can help with that? What's going on? And I think that is what I hear from the kids most often is I was told to go to a trusted adult and that trusted adult either overreacted or underreacted. And so that is difficult for me to want to go to that person if they're not going to follow through and say, do what they said they would do. So I think the trusted adult piece is huge. And I also think that, um, you know, when Mikkel was at that point, Adam, you know, they say that suicide 
attempts are the corner intersection of hopelessness and burdensomeness. So there is some feeling from these children, at least, that I am causing problems in the family, or I'm the problem, or I'm a burden. And so this is a selfless act mm -hmm. to do that. So with boys, especially just in my own personal and professional experience, watching our own region suffer from this, it's very cryptic. I mean, it, it, the, the signals are something like, see you on the flip side, like a post-sensation. Right. Um, I want my life back three months ago. Like that, the student that died in Tempe wrote, I want my life three months ago back three months ago because he wasn't in trouble then and then his next tweet was my girlfriend just broke up with me and his next tweet was help i mean i don't know what else you uh, could have said and meanwhile kids are liking it retweeting it you know right. right because they're just scrolling and they see like help they're like yeah man i need help too you know so they're relating to it and we have done a terrible job in my opinion of not training students on when you see these things, you need to go to someone that you can trust. And that may not be the school. It may not be your parents, but they know well before we do, at least six to eight weeks before we do, when someone is planning either a violent attack as evidenced by Uvalde um, or a, 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 you know, an attempt to take one's life. And so no. if we're gonna keep handing these devices out, then we have to have some sort of training for kids on what is the difference between a friend that's just having a bad day and this chronic uptick and escalation of calls for help? And that is what, unfortunately, our children are our first responders and we have given them zero training. Yeah. One of the frustrating things, and I don't know, maybe you see the same thing, is I love the outpouring of love and support after a suicide. But sometimes I just wonder how can we reposition those resources? Because at that point, I'm not saying it's, it's not worth it, but it's a little bit too little too late, you know, in that particular instance. And, yeah. But it's like, we don't really jump into action until it happens. And then we're, then everybody comes out of the woodwork, you know, money, resources, whatever, support, rallies, everything that comes after the fact. So it's almost like we're, we're very reactive. And so the pattern keeps going and then there's more vigils and there's more, you know, but it's like, what are we doing beforehand and how can we trigger people to jump and spring into action with time and resources and everything earlier? You know, I've heard you refer to this as front load wellness. Yeah. I mean, so when you look at, you know, what we call by prevention science, a public health model approach to this, it's, prevention. So you're front loading the whole community, all the adults, all the kids, the alumni, the elders with prevention information. There's the intervention lane of like when a kid starts to wobble, who is honing in on that kid and making a plan so we can move him back to wellness. And then there's the postvention, like after an attempt, after a completion, after a crisis, we're triaging again, the whole community, because if we continue to you know, and I say this again with the utmost love, like a wristband that says Jaden Strong. Right. Nice, but not preventing another child, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to hit all three lanes. And the most important lane is that preventative lane. And it has to start in kindergarten, like literally yeah. develop 
really appropriate messaging, both for kids and parents for that. Um, and I, you know, I'll just speak to the school side of things and the government side of things. Like there's this defensiveness, like, well, we did this thing and we did that thing and that's all great. But if you're doing kind of these hodgepodge things and so is your city, but no one's coming together with that collective common agenda, you're actually maybe doing more harm than good because people have a false sense that there's resources and there's not. And I'll give you an example. There are two families who are friends with like five families and those children just lost a best friend, right? Those families are like, Katie, where do we go? And they thankfully have money so they can, I can hook them up with a therapist this weekend to do a group session at their house but there's no wraparound services coming from any entity for a family that doesn't have that. And that's assuming a therapist is A, available and B, willing to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So that after that you're talking about from a clinical standpoint is really difficult as well. So you talk about making this cohesive with all of these different uh, elements in our our kids' lives with the businesses and the churches and the parents and education and, and all these other communities. How do we make that cohesive? So when the Queen Creek contagion happened, I reached out to a man named Dr. Max McGee in Palo Alto, California. He was a superintendent. He had six students stand on a train track behind their high school and die by suicide in two years. And so he was like, I'm bringing the whole school district to a screeching halt. I'm going over to Stanford University where the experts are. I'm getting all the churches, all the parents, and he just brought everyone together. And they came up with a very, in my opinion, quick response, a collective impact statement. These are the three things we need to get in front of. A common agenda, and then how are we gonna do that? You're gonna do this, you're gonna do that. And it was everybody doing that. So there's already a model and it worked. They have completely slowed down their suicide rate. They have had a few, but they, I mean, they overhauled the high school experience. They did so much, in my opinion, magical work. So I have been trying to bring that model here for five years. I have unfortunately been successful, but there are many evidence-based national models like that. And for me, it's not about like, I need a building. I need $500,000. It's mm -hmm. I would like to do a low level, palatable, easy campaign, like helping families thrive. And you go to the town of Queen Creek and you go into a restaurant and on Wednesday nights, they give 20% off as a helping families thrive business for you to have dinner with your family. You go to the rec, you know, sports complex. There's a free helping families thrive pickleball, you know, game that you're allowed to drink. Like, so many little tiny things that can be done to promote connectivity amongst families and communities that don't even mention the word suicide. Like I'm way downstream from that, right? Mm -hmm. But we just continue to be kind of reactive and, and working upstream instead of looking downstream and like, how do we get there, right? So we can mitigate that risk. You know, in the article that I that you were quoted in that I was reading, I think they were talking about there tends to be an uptick in in suicides towards the end of the school year. And, you know, here we are at the end of the school year. And I had never even thought about that. I've always thought about, you know, around the holidays. I mean, that's something that people often talk about. But because I've always viewed the end of school as something very exciting for kids and positive and, 
looking forward to the summer and you're done with the grades and the homework. Can you talk a little bit about what you know about that? Yeah. I mean, we unfortunately have this, what I call a performance arms race where parents are putting way too much pressure on kids about grades and the peer group is also putting pressure on themselves about grades. So if you are a sophomore or junior, especially with ACT, SAT, starting to think about college or what you want to do after you've got that pressure. You also have kids that are going home to untenable households. So school mm. is actually the safest place for them to be in eight hours a day. They can be away from their alcoholic death. So we think, you know, I used to think like you did this jubilee of like, woo, we're out for summer. But that is, fortunately we have a small, you know, a short summer here and it's only seven, eight weeks. Um, but there's also a finality for like our seniors. We had four seniors in April die by suicide in other parts of the Valley. Um, this notion that like, oh my God, I'm leaving school. I'm graduating. I'm going to college is like this huge thing, right? Like this huge, like there's some finality to this comfy place that I've had with all my friends. And so again, I go back to coping. Like, what are those coping skills? How am I resilient? So we do see an escalation at the end of school, the start of school, and then around that holiday break in November, December, um, again, exams and disconnection from friends due to being on break. This is the second time you've brought up the word connection. And I, I think that maybe we underestimate the importance of that in helping people cope, whether it's us connecting with our kids, whether it's our friends, our kids connecting with their friends or their educators, you know, other trusted adults. So I have a couple questions for you. The first one is how do we become trusted adults? What would your best advice be? And the second one is how can we promote connection with our kids and in our communities? What I hear from children, including my own, <laughs> um, sometimes I just need you to listen. And I definitely need you to listen without judgment. So I think listening with non-judgment is first and foremost. I also think listening without judgment and then investigating, do you want me to just listen or do you want to strategize? I think that second piece is missing where we listen and they're kind of left with the yuck and they feel a little better because they got it out. But we haven't done kind of that role play back and forth. Like Chloe really made you mad. So tomorrow, what's one thing you can try with Chloe? I'm Chloe, you're Katie. And we kind of role play back and forth. Now, is that going to be a hallmark moment the next day? No, it's probably going to be pretty awful. But practicing that vocabulary over and over of advocating for yourself is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the second question you had was deepening the connection. Um, adults need to put their devices down. We are horrible. We are horrible role models. Connect <laughs> them, forgetting on them. Get off your game. Get out. You know, put it down. I know we work. It's your financial livelihood. I get it. But these devices are tremendous obstacles in front of us, and they're wreaking havoc on our relationships with our kids. When I think Mikkel's better at this than I am, because I'll be checking emails and things like that. And you'll miss so much of nonverbal, uh, you know, things going on around you with the kids or opportunities, opportunities to talk will pass by because I'm checking my emails or I'm looking at news or whatever is going on, which seems to be important. But I think that's a great point to just be present more and pay attention 
and you'll hear things and see things that you wouldn't, that you would miss otherwise. I do. One strategy that I've learned from a man named Dr. Michael Gurian, he's kind of like the boy guru of the nation, um, is shoulder to shoulder, especially with boys, like making up an errand and taking them for a car ride. Like when boys' bodies are in motion, the emotional floodgates open. Um, so backseat next to you, throwing a ball, whenever they're in motion, you're going to get a lot out of them as opposed to sitting at the kitchen table saying, why do you feel this? You know, like completely overwhelmed, too many words, and they want to talk, but you have now coated their brain with cortisol and they can't get it out. And so I think that is a strategy that really works with boys. Um, and I think as it relates to suicide, you know, the completion rate across the nation is four to one boys or men to girls. We've seen a triple uptick in female attempts. Um, but the reason we don't catch the boys is um, they tend to be, you know, obviously fueled with testosterone and more courageous to use lethal means. So we have to get families to lock up their guns and lock up their medications. Um, and that is a heavy ask here in the state of Arizona regarding guns, you know, um, and I haven't figured that out yet. But, you know, when I look across the region at how these kids have decided to complete, it's most often with a parent or a grandparent's firearm. Mm -hmm. What are you willing to do for your child to prevent this? And I think for me, that was the thing. I didn't realize I was right there. Like we're, we're here. I'd always heard about suicide and I thought I knew what it looked like. And I would know when we got there, the problem is we were there and I didn't realize we were there. You and thought there was more of a buffer. Yeah. And so I think people, well, I did anyway, underreact because it, you don't think it looks like what you think suicide looks like. And, well, and I think we're wired to avoid pain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are naturally wired to avoid discomfort and pain. So imagine how overwhelmed kids must feel. If you and I feel overwhelmed, like, you know, I'm seeing something, I'm not sure, you know, imagine how a student who's feeling suicidal feels. And that's what makes me a little bit, you know, I would say more than frustrated is like, the adults in these school districts and communities and municipalities that are like, yeah, that's not really our lane. That's not, you know, that's not our job, so to speak. I'm like, but it is the well-being of your residents should, I don't care what age resident should be number one priority. Mm -hmm. So what would your takeaway be going forward when we have our listeners and they're listening to this episode you can feel the passion, you can feel the urgency, like this is something that needs to be addressed now. What would your recommendation be for them moving forward? How do we change this? A couple of things. I mean, we have an election cycle coming up. So I would be asking candidates, like what is your um, platform on social emotional wellness? Um, and it doesn't need to become politicized, right? It's how, do, what do you think about the wellness of youth? I would say emailing your mayors, your city council members, your superintendency, your assistant superintendents, your director of counseling, and saying, can we come together at the table? It is long overdue for you to be shouldering all of this. We as parents, community members, et cetera, want to help. And we would like to come together and put a task force together. And by task force, again, I mean, 
like this low level campaign, it can be very tiny where we're just raising awareness, then we're plugging in the education, then we're looking at policy and funding to really move the needle. It doesn't have to be everything out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good two cents and good advice. We really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us today. Uh, it's not going to air today, but it's a holiday. So you took time in the middle of a holiday. So thank you so, so much for doing that. And thanks for all you're doing. And, you know, if there's somebody listening who has, you know, great ideas or wants to help, I'm more than happy to connect them. I feel like I'm just a connector in the community, right? I, I accidentally, truly accidentally got into this space. Um but I'm purposely moving it forward. So um, happy to help in any way. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way uh, for them? Yeah, um, I have my own website. It's katiemcpherson.com, K-A-T-E-Y. Um, and they can message me there and I'll get in touch with them. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Thank Katie. you. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us here today. We're so glad to have you always again and again. If there are topics that you'd like to see covered or specific questions that you have, you can submit them on Instagram at Thriving with Mental Illness. Remember, there are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't okay to ask. We will see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>